Well, church, we are continuing our teaching series called Enduring Kingdom through the book of 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can feel free to turn there. Uh, if not, you can listen along as we read. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is, in many ways, the climax of the book of 2 Samuel, and really the climax of the, the life and story of David. This is the moment where God uh, kind of comes bursting through and sets the scene for uh, the way the kingdom is going to be under the rule of David. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is what the storyteller says. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of those rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. So, to summarize where we've been in the book of 2 Samuel, we have seen David finally become king over all of Israel. And we've seen David, through the power of God, win stunning victories over the Jebusites at Jerusalem. And stunning victories over the Philistines, so much so the Philistines will never again be heard of while David is king. And David rises to power and he, he builds his capital in Jerusalem. And so much so is his, his power and influence growing. Uh, we find out that 
Kings and surrounding nations gather resources from their own land. They haul it into Jerusalem and they build David a giant royal palace. I mean, David is set up nicely. And so we pick up this picture in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in David's wonderfully beautiful house. Now, just pause with me for a minute. It says that David lived in a house of cedar. That doesn't sound overly appealing to me. I grew up in a house where, uh, remember in the early 80s, paneling was a big deal. We had dark paneling everywhere in the house. So like a house of cedar to me is kind of feels like, maybe not. So David's in this house of cedar. What you have to understand is in the Old Testament, a cedar house was like the stuff, right? It was like luxury. No one lived in places like this. So imagine David with his best buddy Nathan out on the porch of this beautiful, super-structured cedar house. And he's looking over this whole vista from the hill that is Jerusalem and the, uh, and the Mount, uh, Mount of Zion. And he's looking over all that God has done. And he says to himself, something's wrong here, Nathan. Here I live in this big, wonderful house, but God's living in a tent over there. I should do something about that. I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan, his buddy, says, listen, I've watched your life. Everything you've done has turned to gold, right? You ever know those people, right? Seems like everything they do, everything they touch turns to gold. Nathan's like, seems like you can't do anything wrong. Just go for it. I know God will be with you. But shockingly, later that night, God comes to Nathan and says, let me summarize the the rest of this first half of the chapter. I don't want any house from David. I'm not interested. Now, we have to call time out for just a minute. This is not the point of the text, but it is an important kind of principle that we should learn and glean from this text. And that is two things that are going on here, right? The first is that even though something seems like a really good idea and seems like it could be used to honor God in a profound way, does not necessarily mean that it jives with God's intentions at the moment. That's hard for us as humans to process sometimes, doesn't it? We have incredible plans sometimes that we think will be so good for what God wants. Usually they are pretty good for us too, right? And then God sometimes will say, well, it's an okay idea, but not yet. That's frustrating. It's deeply frustrating for us sometimes. And the second principle, and this is important for us to realize, is that, let me just say it as straight as I can, a prophet is only a prophet when he or she speaks the words of God. David turns to Nathan, who's always told him the right thing to do, and says, should I do this? And Nathan's like, yeah, you should do it. And God has to say to Nathan, I didn't want him to do that. It's easy for us sometimes, is it not, to have people who we really look up to and who we really have mentored us or are influential to us in our spiritual walk, authors, pastors, uh, great men or women of the faith, and to assume that if they say or do it, it must be right. There's this whole weird culture in bigger Christianity right now that's like celebrity pastorism, right? Here are these really famous pastor dudes, and so if they do it, it must be gold. Well, it could be. But the thing that is so distinguishing this moment from all the other stories we've heard about David up to this point is 
Neither David nor Nathan goes and asks God what he thinks. They just move forward with their plans. Remember when David's fighting the Philistines? He's like, God, what should I do? Should I attack them? God says, yes, he does it. When he's fighting the Jebusites, should I attack them? God says, yes, he does it. How should I do it? David is following the wisdom of God, but somehow here in this moment when he feels a little more secure, a little more powerful, a little more in control, a little more influential, things turn to, this is what I think I should do. Now, getting back to the story, let's just be honest. David's idea is a good idea, right? I mean, he's living in this luxurious house, and he says, God is in a tent. Now, think about this for a moment. The God of the whole universe, the creator of all things, lives in a tent, right? The tabernacle that God dwells in, so God is the presence of God is in uh, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this beautiful and ornate box that is encrusted in gold, and, and God's presence lives there. But when it travels around, like he, he, the, the Ark of the Covenant lives basically in a tent. Now, we, every year we go on vacation with my in-laws. Uh, I love my in-laws. They're some of my favorite people on the whole earth. Every year we go on vacation with them to this place called Assateague. And Assateague is an interesting place for many reasons. There's wild horses there. It spooks me to death every time. I've gone for a decade, I think, now, and I, I can't get over it. I, you know, I'm, I'm laying in my tent, and I hear them out there even when they're not there, and I'm terrified of them because they rule, right? David's king over Israel. It's the horses who are kings over Assateague, you know? They basically tell you the horse can do whatever it wants to, and you can't touch them, and it's probably a good idea. So, so we go there every year, and I love my in-laws so much, Rach can, can uh, affirm this, that every year I reside in a tent for two days. And it is, a, is it not, is a wonderful gift of grace and a giving of myself to my in-laws who I love, because there's nothing about the tent that I like. I love the company, uh, the beach is there, there's things to do, but the tent, it drives me crazy. Right? Because here's some problems, some innate problems with tent dwelling, right? It's that in a tent dwelling, your pillow, no matter what, is always kind of damp, right? That is no good. Your back can never have the perfect contour and laying in it. If you happen to be bigger like me, tents are never good for people like us. And then there's a family of four in there. If there's ever any moisture, right, you can't touch the tent because then the moisture comes in. And you're trying to encased even further to the inside of this tent. And then, if by some act of God, there is a massive storm that comes rolling through, the last two years at Assateague, by the way, the tent does not provide you the cover that you would like. So after experiencing being drenched two years ago, last year when I saw the forecast, and I saw the clouds, and I looked at the lack of sturdiness that is our tent, which comes out once a year, I said to Rachel, we will be sleeping in the van tonight. And so we did. We slept in the van that night. Rachel and one of the boys slept in the camper with her parents, and maybe Jackson or Tyler slept with me in the van. We laid down the seats. We stepped in the van. It was uncomfortable, but we were dry and safe. And I woke up the next morning, and I looked around, and I couldn't see tents anywhere. This place is covered in tents. I had to go to the bathroom, so I walked to the bathhouse, and then I saw all the tents in the dumpster next to the bathhouse, mangled and twisted and completely undone. So let me ask you a question. Does David have a good idea when he says to the God of the universe, maybe you shouldn't live in a tent? 
right? Now listen, I, because I love my in-laws, live in a tent for two days, right? That's it. There's a covenant I've made with them. What if you had to live in a tent for a week? What if you lived in a tent for a month? What if you lived in a tent for a year? Can you imagine moving all your belongings into a tent, right? Oh, we'll do well for you. We'll get you a bigger tent, but you're going to be in a tent for a year. What about a decade? What about since the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt? And now you get a picture of God residing in a tent for generation after generation after generation. And so we are all set up to say, this is a swimmingly good idea. And God taps Nathan on the shoulder and says, not so fast. In fact, I'm staying in the tent. And so, unless you are like completely agreeable, you like me, you're asking a pretty singular question here. Why? Why would you not want a nice house to live in? Why would you stay in the tent? And God, in his response to Nathan, really gives two central answers to this question of why. The first is that God, by nature, is incarnational. And the second is that God, by nature, is gracious. So let's take a look at both of these, uh, starting with the first one. God, by nature, is incarnational. Do you know what that means, incarnational? It means kind of in the flesh, dwelling with his people. Uh, I don't like chili. Some people like chili. Chili con carne. What makes it different than regular chili? It has meats, right? It's flesh. God incarnate is there in the presence. This idea of the incarnational nature of God is that he wants to live and be where his people are. So, if the people are on the move out of Egypt, so is God. And if the people are wandering in the wilderness, then God's wandering with them. And if the people are unsettled, even as they're entering the land, then God is living in a tent. Do you get it? That God is not okay to live like a royal king when his people have not yet fully known the rest and peace that he intends to bring them. Certainly David is living in luxury, but that is not yet true of all of Israel. Now pause and think about this for a minute. This is the God of the universe who willingly chooses to do this. A number of years ago, uh, our family lived in King of Prussia. And right near King of Prussia is Valley Forge. And Valley Forge is pretty famous. Most of us know at least enough of American history to know Valley Forge was associated with a really bad winter for the Continental Army, who were living in what? Tents, right? And the commanders of the army were not living in tents. They were living in a nicer farmhouse and more, more ornate, ornate, more solid structures elsewhere. The picture that God is painting in this moment is what it would be like if the commander of the army in, in, the, in the days of Valley Forge came and pitched a tent right next to the least important officer or, or person in the army. You see this? This is our God. God is by his nature incarnational. 
And then secondly, God is by his nature gracious. And, and, and the storyteller is going to go after this hard because God goes after this hard with Nathan in order to go after it hard with David. He starts by kind of reiterating his past graciousness to David and to Israel, and then speaks about future graciousness. He says, David, you used to live in a pasture. You were a shepherd. And now look at you. You're a leader. You're you're revered amongst men. And the inherent question is, how did that happen? And the answer is, the grace of God is how it happened. And Israel used to be an enslaved nation. And even when they weren't enslaved, they were nomadic, wandering around without any home. And now they have this land to dwell in and a king to lead them. And there's prosperity and and, and fullness of life in the land. And the, the inherent question is, how did that happen? And the answer is, it's the grace of God. See, God did this, not David and not Israel. And so then... God, I don't play poker, um, and I don't know much about it. I know every once in a while when I'm trying to watch Sports Center late at night, I turn on ESPN and there's poker on, as if someone wants to watch that on TV. But here's, <laughs> here's what I know about poker, right? Someone who thinks they have a really good hand will oftentimes make a big bet. Is that true? I think that's true, right? And they'll push a lot into the center. But then there might be someone else who's holding an even bigger hand who will not only call, but will raise the stakes, right? And in essence, this is what God is about to do. He said, oh, you want to build me a house? I'll call that, and I'll raise the stakes. Actually, you won't build me a house. I will build you a house. Now, God is changing things because he's not talking about a physical structure. He's now talking about a ruling dynasty, the house of David that will rule over all of Israel. That this storyline is not going to be about what David can do for God, but about what God does for David, so that through David, God can do it for all of his people. Do you see it? You might say, well, okay, David's trying to do something really good here. Can we cut the guy some slack? And you have to understand the contemporary reality of David. And you can find this in Egyptian history, Assyrian history, all kinds of history of kingdoms of the day. Here's what would happen. A king would begin to rise to power. He would win some impressive military victories. He would gain influence over his people. He would be established as the ruler. You know then what he would do? Almost always, he would build a temple for the prevailing God of the culture. And do you know why he would do it? Because he would want to bend the will of that God towards the keeping of his kingdom, right? So in other words, it could play out something like this. A pharaoh rises to power, wins some important victories, stabilizes the country, is gaining influence. He builds a temple for this major Egyptian god. The priests come, and as they're they're carrying out worship to this god, they read oracles that say, the god of Egypt has said about this pharaoh that his kingdom will last forever. You see it? The king acts for God, and therefore God acts for the king. And God is striking at the core of this formula from Jump Street. And friends, forget kingdoms for a minute. If you look into this, you see the core error of religion. Religion says that through some effort of my own, 
through some effort of power or control or influence, through either service to God or worship of God or some moral action on behalf of God, I can bend God's will of blessing and love towards me. And when I say that about religion, I'm not talking about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism. I'm talking about religion. In fact, most of the way that people are practicing their Christianity. And nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel of grace. See, God wants us to know from Jump Street here, and he wants David to know in a central way as this clear ambassador of God's kingdom, that the blessing and love of God is never achieved conditionally, but it is always received unconditionally. This is our God. And then God, expanding upon the reality of grace, goes and says, listen, I want you to know, David, that not only am I making this promise and covenant of grace to you, but I want you to know that this grace is unfailing. Nothing can corrupt it. Nothing can block it. Nothing can break it. Nothing can nullify it. In fact, he goes after three things in his statements here. I'm not sure if you caught them. That would be easy things that ought to nullify this covenant. The first is death, right? I mean, David's going to die. And God says, listen, there's going to come a time when you will lay down with your ancestors, but I want you to know something. That your death will not mean the death of this covenant, nor will it mean the death of your house. Your descendants and your offspring will rise up, and this covenant will be delivered to them. Death cannot stop the grace of God. And he says, what about sin? God says, listen, some of your offspring are not going to be good people. Right? Let's put it in a pretty basic way. In fact, we've already seen David's not the best of people. He's speaking specifically of Solomon here, but even after Solomon, there are some offspring of David who, in one word, could pretty well be summarized as wicked people. And God says, listen, their wickedness might bring chastisement or punishment to them individually, but it will never nullify this covenant that I've made. In essence, sin could destroy an inhabitant of the house of David, but it would never demolish the house itself. Sin cannot break the covenant of God's grace. And then lastly, and perhaps most Unbelievably, time. God says this covenant will be, his words, forever. And it was not metaphorical. He was making a statement of truth. So that neither death, nor sin, nor time could nullify the love and grace of God. And so again, we're posed with the question, but how? How? How can death and sin and time not disrupt the grace and the covenant reality of God? And friends, there's only one answer. That somewhere in this line and dynasty of David, somewhere in this house that is everlasting, there is going to come a king who will not just be another king, but will be the ultimate king. And so just a few months ago, we celebrated the season of Advent. 
And it should not be surprising to us that in announcing the birth of Jesus, there is incredible association with this baby to the house of David. In the city of David is born for you. From the line of David, Matthew wants us to know intimately. Jesus comes from this line. And then pretty famously in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus says, in in essence, in his first announcement of public ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. How on earth could the kingdom of God be at hand? Because the king was at hand. The gospel writers wanted us to associate Jesus with David because he is the ultimate king that God was foretelling in this covenant of grace with David. And Jesus goes on in his ministry to heal many people. And he performs countless miracles. And he preaches his stunning sermons. And his ministry is gathering influence. So much so that it leads to this climactic moment of, of, of royal entry into the city of David. Up the hill. You remember this. We celebrated on Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry. The coronation. The king that is to come. And everything in us wants us to believe that finally this is coming to pass And the story takes a strange and difficult to understand right turn and leads to what seems like a catastrophic end on a separate hill called Calvary. When this king who we thought could be the king met his ultimate earthly demise and breathed his last. But friends, we know that the story continues. Three days later, we're reminded that death could not hold the ultimate son of David. That sin could not conquer the ultimate son of David. And therefore, that time will not hold back the ultimate king of David. How can this kingdom be eternal? How can there be a final king? Because the final king himself is able to deal with both death And sin. And he does it on the cross and announces its victory through the resurrection. See, Jesus is not just only the final king, the full reality of this covenant of grace, but he is the very embodiment of the reason God didn't need David to build him a house. Because the author of Philippians, the Apostle Paul, reminds us in chapter 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to tightly. He wasn't interested in just dwelling in his big heavenly palace. Instead, he willingly took on the miserable reality of humanity. And the Apostle John puts it this way in the opening chapter of his gospel, that the word that is Jesus became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us. You know what the literal translation is there? And he tabernacled amongst us. You got it right. Jesus left the heavenly palace, and he pitched his tent in our neighborhood. 
And then Jesus is not just only the reality of the incarnational nature of God, but also the gracious nature of God, because Jesus takes the hard right turn towards Calvary. He deals with the sin of the world and humanity. He deals once and for all in death, not because any of us have earned it, not even because any of us have believed it or accepted it. He does it first. Why? Because it's grace that leads to faith and obedience. The Apostle Paul famously writes, He died for us while we were still sinners or while we were yet enemies of God. This is the nature of God. And so it should not be surprising to us that Jesus would make a raucous claim as he walked by the temple one day and say, this temple, they're going to destroy it. But don't worry. I'll raise it back up in three days. And the disciples are perplexed by this. You're going to build this thing again? It took forever to build this. But Jesus was letting them know that this new kingdom was once again transferring the reality of the presence of God, no longer confined to an external space, but now once again dwelling fully in the midst of his people. And as he hung on the cross and breathed his last church, you remember what happened? The very thing that divided even the holiest of people from the presence of God. This curtain in the temple is ripped in half. And the presence of God is announced to the whole world through Jesus. Do you see what it means to have a God who is both incarnational and gracious? This is not some story about a covenant with a king hundreds of years ago. This is a story about a God who makes a covenant with the ultimate King Jesus so that the full people of God can experience the fullness of life that is existing in His kingdom only. And so Jesus says, come to me, everyone who is weary, and I will give you rest. I have come to give you life and life to its fullest. And then the New Testament writers remind us that anyone who is in Christ, Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 1, has been given the very spirit of God. Do you see the ultimate transaction that has now happened? The God who lived in a tent because he had to be with his people, who finally lives in a temple, now not only resides next to us, but in us. Fully taking on the plight of humanity. Why? Because we are broken. And we live in a broken world And God is not willing to dwell in a royal castle somewhere far away when his people don't yet fully know peace. And so he says, I will be with you wherever you go, even to the ends of the earth. And remember this, church, that it is not just personal for us, but it is missional for the world. That God is tabernacling with you and in you, not just for the fullness of life and peace that you can gain, but also in a Davidic way, the fullness in life that you can proclaim to the world around you. Because, friends, there are people in your neighborhood, there are people at your workplace, there are people in your family, there are people in your friends who have not even tasted the beginnings of peace yet. 
And that is not okay with our God. He will not reside in a holy temple up high on a hill when his people don't yet know peace. And so there is purpose as you go. Church, do you know what God has done for you? This story of David was not just a God picked out a cool guy and gave him a great blessing. He blessed David so that David could be a conduit of the blessing to all of the people. David was broken, but Jesus was not. And Jesus then becomes everything David could never be and is able in our union to him to give to us all of the blessings of kingdom life, the full inheritance of the heavenly places. And while we wait for it in its fullness here in broken earth, he says, I'm pitching my tent with you because I know you haven't experienced in its fullness yet. This is the God I know. This is the God I worship. And so when Nathan delivers this news to David, go home and, and read the prayer, the rest of this second half of this chapter. David goes and falls to his knees and sits before God and says, who am I that you would do this? The only response to a true acknowledgement of a gospel of grace is for someone who looks like an earthly king to say, I get it. I've got an office and all, but I'm not really the king. You are. What about you, church? As you sit in the throne of your life, ruling from some essence of cedar palace, do your eyes find the God who lives in a tent? And are you willing to hit your knees and say, I get it. You're king and I'm not. Can I pray with you?